0: everybody. What's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and it's good to be back with you for the third episode since the relaunch of Bible Prophecy Talk. You can go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com to subscribe to the podcast or to sign up for the newsletter. Just a quick show note. uh, Really, thank you to everybody that has donated to the film project over there at PreWrathMovie.com, where you can check out the fundraising trailer. We've almost raised 40% of the goal in the first few weeks, which is just surpassing my expectations for that. So really, thanks to each and every one of you for that. We have the first few interviews scheduled for the first couple weeks in December, so more news on that as it comes up, and you can check it out at PreRathMovie.com. Also, before we get started, I wanted to announce a competition, uh, and this is out of my own pocket. This is not uh, PreRath film project money, but this is just something I've been wanting to do for a while, which is a a pre rath meme competition so you know memes uh meme generator.com I, actually it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a known meme kind of format but it's a talent that people have that is to be able to encapsulate things into meme format it's a talent that i do not possess i've sat down uh, having recognized the the importance of memes to getting concepts out to people i've sat down to think of it and i just i just don't have it so if you are a pre-rather and you can think of a meme about pre wrath or maybe about pre tribulationalism or or i don't know you know run wild with it whatever you can do and i will give $100 for the winner of this competition, $50 for the runner-up, $25 for uh, for, uh, third place, I guess. So yeah, and also I could see this being something that I would be interested in paying you in the future. I mean, if you are really good at this and you are a somebody that can continually produce this kind of stuff i would be interested in in supporting uh, such a ministry so uh so maybe this is a good way to to discover some talent if you are a memer and a pre-rather let's uh let's uh, get together my email is nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com that's N-O-W-H-E-R-E-T-O-R-U-N 1984 at gmail.com. By the way, sorry to everybody for not uh, being very good at getting to emails. That's just not uh, something I'm going to be all that good at these days. But I am reading all the emails, so thanks for sending them. So for the first part of this podcast today, I just wanted to rant a little bit about... This thing I've been thinking of, and as I've said before, that I've been listening to way too much conservative talk radio, and I find that I'm thinking of it more in terms of like, how is my team doing today? I mean, news in general is told to us uh, through like a series of clickbait headlines. That's how history is being told these days and like uh, who can come up with the most sensational headline. It's actually a a very uh, bad way to tell history. I was imagining some future idiocracy kind of situation where like each page in the history book is like some uh, clickbait headline uh, and this is what happened this day or whatever. But the point I'm trying to make here is that it feels like how's your team doing today? And whether that's the impeachment or uh, I think especially the political stuff, It seems more powerful for conservatives because we feel like there's more riding on, and I'm not talking about impeachment here. I'm just talking about everything. Politics to us right now is about freedom. It's about truth. It's about this seemingly enclosing darkness and these lies and this just weirdness that we want to believe if everybody just knew the truth, uh, that it could all go back to normal, you know? And... I think that we envision victory here, uh, and I think rightly so. We envision that there is a chance for victory in the political realm in which, I don't know, let's say the Democrats that are involved in all this uh, stuff, they go to jail, you know, that— the attorney general really does, you know, convict the people that are guilty, and, and they all go to jail, and everybody gets exposed, and the the view gets uh, shut down because of you know lack of ratings, and and the New York Times is exposed for you know knowingly lying. So 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 the press goes back to actually reporting news, and and maybe the universities recognize the error of their ways and say, hey, you know, we're going to stop brainwashing these children and turning them into evil monsters. We're going to be normal again. I mean, how much of this is a true reality? And I guess the question for me is like what is the nature of this evil that is to say is the evil that we are seeing just a part of some trends and forces Uh, Maybe a little bit of, you know, satanic influence mixed in there. But basically, it's just another historical cycle. There's been tons of really bad, uh, evil historical cycles that came and went. The French Revolution was a good example of that. I mean, they were completely anti-Christian. They were killing people in the streets, turning churches into houses of reason and and of course, that did not last. France is much different today and and, and things have changed and people basically went back to normal. So it's possible that we're in some kind of normal historical cycle, which can be uh, fought against in a political way. And, you know, we could turn it all around and the right people could go to jail and uh, everything could go more or less back to normal, maybe a little worse than it was, but still better than what it looks like it's going. Alternatively, maybe it's just going to keep getting worse and it's never going to get better. Uh, We may be able to slow it down a little bit, but maybe this is some sort of like actual satanic plot. I mean, I do believe that the people behind Jeffrey Epstein and, you know, go up a couple more rungs. I mean, there's some really bad satanic people out there doing satanic things that have unbelievable amounts of money that do, in fact, own these institutions these media institutions i mean i think one of the worst things that's ever happened uh, that we've allowed to happen is the fcc allowing uh, people to own more than just a few newspapers or radio stations that put that kind of super important information into fewer and fewer hands and as much as we are growing and, and becoming one uh, language this new babel of a world that we are in we're actually more susceptible to one or two voices being able to tell us how to think and i think ultimately that comes down to the susceptibility of humans towards propaganda um and, and so it really it, you di- it does it just takes money to be able to control the minds of people but i guess what i'm saying is that is that if that is in fact satanic and there's a satanic plot then maybe we can even stop that through prayer or, or you know focused uh you know breaking down some of those uh, uh, walls or st- something exposing some of it. I mean where where does true victory lie versus how much of this is essentially fatalistic? I, I really do appreciate people like Alex Jones who is the opposite of fatalistic. That is, he truly believes that we can win, we can change it, we can turn it all around, or at least that's what he he says. That may not be true. We might not make it to the stars or whatever. In fact, I don't think we will, based on I don't know if the if uh, revelation can really even happen if we've got colonies on uh, uh, Mars or whatever. But that's sort of beside the point. But, we, but my point is is that by believing that, by by being called to to push against the evil, we are in fact slowing it down. But it may be just too strong to stop entirely, which I think you can biblically back up. This whole thing doesn't really stop; it just does get worse to the point where Satan himself is forcing everybody to worship him at the point of a gun, basically. And um, and it really needs to be stopped by God Himself. I mean, that is, uh, you know, what we are ultimately expecting. The question is, are we in just a? Are, you know, we can't see the forest for the trees with our current political situation, anyway my overall point here i guess is to say that it's really dangerous i think to live and die with expectations that you know we will expose the liars and and, and everything and all the the people will go to jail that need to go to jail in the current circumstances because really they might not and and this might all just go the complete opposite way that we want it to go, and I don't think that we should uh, uh, live and die with that. we We need our hope needs to be elsewhere. That doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, strive for justice, but we shouldn't pin our hopes on it. So, yeah, I'm not really sure I said what I wanted to there, but uh, let's go ahead and move on to the second part of the podcast, which is talking about the doctrine of eminence. So eminence is the belief that there are no prophesied events that must take place before the rapture that is to say that the rapture could occur at any moment so the doctrine of imminence has an interesting dual nature in that it is on the one hand extremely passionately believed in um, by tribbers, but I think almost particularly by the older generation of pre-tribbers, I could be wrong about that. I don't have any poll numbers on it, Uh, but it does seem to be a much more fervent belief among those that have come from, you know, the Jesus movement and the Hal Lindsey sort of, that came down uh, from that era. But the other side of eminence is the lack of arguments for it. So it's this weird thing where we believe this to such a strong degree, as if it was some unimpeachable doctrine like the divinity of Christ. It is, it's got this weird, passionate uh, fan base, but at the same time, that fan base doesn't seem to offer any good reasons to believe it. I mean, that, that's odd, of course, because if you had that, that much passion in something, there should be a corresponding uh, proof For And I've almost delayed talking about eminence because I feel like, well, I haven't really heard the arguments for eminence yet. And I'm starting to realize there just aren't any. And of course, there are people that have written articles and uh, given sermons about why eminence is true. I'm not saying that there aren't people arguing for it. What I am saying that in every case that I've seen somebody argue for eminence... They're not actually explaining why the verses they cite mean imminence. So, for example, I just got done reading an article by John MacArthur, and like every other article about imminence that I've read, it quotes these Bible verses that say that we should wait for the return of Christ, that we should wait eagerly for the return of Christ. Um, some of them say that we should expect the return of Christ, or be alert for the return of Christ. We should remain awake uh, that we should wait for, that it is near. There's a timing one there, uh, that, that the the return of Christ is near. And some even say at hand, which is another timing kind of verse. Now, let's just take that first part, the, the idea that we should wait for, expect, eagerly await, um, look for the return of Christ. Those things are certainly uh, true. They're certainly things that I believe, I, I wait and look forward to and uh, expect the return of Christ, none of those things about my expectancy uh, or my watchfulness about the return of Christ means that there are no prophesied events that must occur before the return of Christ. That seems on its face absurd to believe that those things that I just said actually mean that there are no prophesied events that must occur before the rapture, especially in light of the fact that we see just thing after thing in the Bible that clearly are prophesied events that must occur before the return of Christ. Even if you, as we pre rathers have to do, we have to pretend that Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2 don't speak about the rapture, and that's fine. We can play with one arm tied behind our back if we want to, but there are certainly other things in the Bible Peter's death was prophesied. Uh, and if Peter is in fact saying that, that the return of Christ is, is near and at hand, and by that he means that there are no prophesied events that must happen before the return, how can he say that in 1 Peter but not yet have been dead? Because he has to, a prophesied event, his death, was prophesied before the return of Christ. Uh, Obviously, Paul uh, has some of these. Paul was told that he was going to preach in Rome. So when Paul is talking about the nearness of Christ's return, and apparently we're supposed to believe that that's imminent, that it could have happened before Paul spoke through that sentence. uh, But really, no, it couldn't have because it was prophesied that he would go and preach in Rome. And that may seem a little nitpicky, but think about that. If what he said really means imminence, and that's what he intended his readers to understand them, um, did he really mean, oh, yeah, imminent after I get back from Rome or imminent after Peter dies? In the same way, you could take these exact same Greek phrases that they insist mean that no prophesied events must occur before the rapture and look, just do a word study. Look them up in different contexts and you'll find verses like Second Peter 3.13, which says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness there you have Peter telling his readers to look for, this is again the same phrase, the same Greek words, a new heavens and new earth, which unambiguously has signs that preceded. No matter which view you take, there are signs that precede the new heavens and new earth. We probably could go further down that track, maybe 70 AD, not one stone left upon another could be another prophesied event. But my point is that I've been looking for argumentation from pre tribbers that describe why these phrases, uh, maybe from the Greek or maybe from context, whatever, why these expectancy and wait for things mean imminency. That's what I'm not finding anywhere is an actual argumentation to, because that's what we need for me and I believe any rational person to believe that to wait for something and expect it and look for it means imminency. In fact, is that not on its face an oxymoron if you? if you are to look for uh, and await something that has no signs, what are you looking for exactly? Um, now, if we take what I believe is the face value situation, which is that in the Olivet Discourse, when when people ask Jesus the very question, what are the signs of your return? He, he gives them a huge list. He is not a, a God that withholds these things. He gave us all this information about signs we need to look for, sums it all up by saying it's kind of like a fig tree. When you see uh, it start to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these events that I just got done outlining, then you know that my return is near. And then he goes through a lot of information to essentially say, look for it, wait for it, be a watchman. So to sum this point about the proof text up, it's just frustrating to read these articles that say that these proof texts mean something when they have not made an argument that it in fact means that. Here's an example from John MacArthur. He says, the New Testament writers often wrote of Christ's appearing, and they never failed to convey the sense that this could happen imminently. Okay, so do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying the New Testament writers often wrote about Christ's appearing, but they never failed to tell you that that appearing could happen imminently. And this is an example of what he means, apparently. Quote, and now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I mean, that should be pretty obvious to all of you that that has nothing, that has less than nothing to do with whether or not there are prophesied events that must occur before Christ's return. It is apples and oranges. It does not mean that. And the fact that nobody attempts to explain to me why that is supposed to mean that is a problem. Whoever came up with the term phantom doctrine to describe eminence was a genius because that is exactly what... I am seeing with this doctrine it is a doctrine that does not exist except in the minds of the founders of pre-tribulationalism, and that's an actually an interesting study too. When you look up these people right at the beginning, Darby and, and whatnot, they're they're hitting uh, eminence really hard. they are teaching it they are explaining what it is. It, there is a a and you can read these quotes Alan Kirshner, who has a book coming up on eminence and has done more work on the subject than probably anybody to date has has a lot of quotes that really drive home the point of of the pedestal that they've put eminence on. Um, they say things like it is the centerpiece of of your, Sanctification—that is to say—that it is the belief—and this is a whole other form of argumentation. Uh, Alan has it kind of in three different segments, where he says, "You know, they—they they do the proof text thing." What we've kind of been going through. He has another uh, term that he calls ecclesiastical. We'll get into that in a minute. minute. And then the final uh, way that they try to prove imminence is essentially emotional or psychological. And a big part of that is saying that they're. Uh, that the, the fact that Christ could return at any moment—that is what Christ apparently intended to keep us all in line. Okay, that without Him, Him coming at any moment, without that threat of being exposed in my sin at any given moment, kind of like the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, feel like they're not—if they've sinned before they've been baptized the last time, then they're at the threat of of missing the uh, the whatever they call that secret uh, rapture situation. But the point is, is that it's the threat of him coming back and catching you in the act that keeps you doing good, which anybody that's been truly saved by the true gospel knows that that is not a motivation for your sanctification. If you need that, um, then you can rest easy that you have that already in your imminent death. You can die at any moment. There are no signs that a need precede your death, and you will be face to face with the Lord. So if that's what you need to keep right, know that you can die right now before I finish this sentence. And all the things that they say, that applies to death. It does not apply to the rapture, and the, the net result is the exact same thing. There are a couple other psychological arguments that you will hear for imminence, and they will take the form. And John MacArthur says this, and right at the beginning of his article is that these people their their great hope is really in the tribulation, not in Christ's return, which is absurd. Of course, our great hope is in Christ's return regardless of what happens in the interim whether I'm persecuted on the mission field or whether I'm persecuted by the Antichrist my great hope is still in the return of Christ that doesn't change regardless of my circumstances here on earth what if you analyze that particular psychological argument what they're saying their great hope is in fact in is not necessarily in the return of Christ but the the being able to get out of here without any pain they believe that they are Uh, They are promised no pain before the end times. And that is essentially what they are saying with that particular argument that their hope is in. And that, my friend, is a really bad place to put your hope. That's also evidenced in other psychological arguments. They'll say things like, so you're telling me that Christ is going to beat up his bride before the wedding day. That is to say, if you're going to say that they have to go through a tribulation. Again, showing that their hope really is, when you get down to it, in in a a pain-free exodus from earth, not necessarily in uh, Christ himself. It's the idea that they won't get persecuted this one is actually almost too easy to refute. All you have to do is say, you know, where were you during any kind of understanding of church history from the apostles onward? The church is the history of people being killed for Christ's name, and the Bible is a book telling us in almost every page, not only that we will be persecuted in this life, and the more Christ-like we are, the more persecuted we will be, and that there are persecutions coming in the future. We It is a book telling us to embrace persecution and to expect persecution. So this argument that uh, somehow we have been wronged if we are in fact persecuted, whether now or in the future is just a a patently false claim and it should be pointed out as such. Another thing that pre-tribulationalists have been doing, especially lately, is really interesting because on the one hand, patristics, that is to say that what the early church wrote about the rapture and imminence is a major drawback for pre-tribulationalists. It is not a strong suit of theirs at all. It is it is a way that somebody would uh, disprove pre-tribulationalism, but they've been trying to to put forward that it somehow supports imminence recently, but in order to do that, they need to be overtly sneaky, which is not a good look. And I think a part of this film, I'm going to I'm going to show this because it really does show some of the big problems in pre tribulationalism Now, of course, the church fathers are not something that we we just automatically assume their doctrine was correct. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. The church uh, fathers, like everybody else, have been wrong about all kinds of stuff. But typically speaking, if you have a true doctrine, it's going to be something that you can trace back all the way to the anti-Nicene fathers, the very very earliest of church fathers, Irenaeus and and all these guys. Eminence, uh, and I, I mentioned this in the first little video I did about pre-wrath many, many years ago. I mentioned a guy, Feinberg. Is it Paul Feinberg? He did a study. Now, he is a pre-tribulationalist. He did a study looking for eminence, this belief that no prophesied events must happen before the rapture. He tried to find it in the early church. So he did a survey of all the early church uh, writings that he could whatever find. His conclusions were later quoted by people like Thomas Ice and stuff, as, almost, ironically, as proof for pre-tribulationalism. That, and, and Feinberg said that all he could find was imminent inter He said, you can't find imminence in the way that we believe it in the early church, but what you can find is this thing he called imminent inter which means that the early church believed, in fact, that the rapture would be imminent, but only after the Antichrist, the, the midpoint. In other words, once the Antichrist was on the scene, then... The uh, the rapture would be imminent Which is of course what 2 Thessalonians 2 says It says that uh, That's whole, Paul's whole reasoning for saying Hey look, you, you haven't missed the rapture You haven't seen the Antichrist yet We know the Antichrist comes before the rapture Which is what the early church believed So my point is To date, there hasn't been any church fathers That have been surfaced That would challenge that Anybody, and I, Alan is quoted in the uh, fundraising trailer On pre wrath Movie as saying uh, this aspect Which there haven't yet been early church fathers that wrote on this subject that believed that the rapture would occur before the Antichrist. The funny thing about this is that pre will quote various aspects of the church fathers and say, ah, this proves the pre-trib rapture. But in order to do that, they are being sneaky. So here's a couple examples. And I'm getting this from the book, The Pre-Rath Rapture, Answering the Critics by Christopher Perdue, which is a great uh, book to uh, check out on, uh, on Amazon or wherever. Uh, but he quotes a, a few of these prominent Pre-tribulationists, people like John Walvoord and Dwight Pentecost, who are taking quotes from the church fathers out of context. They're quoting the first part, but not and saying, "Hey, there you go. There's imminence in the uh, early church fathers," but not quoting the second part, which clearly implies that this imminence is within the context of the Antichrist. So another interesting and I think entertaining aspect of this is where pre-tribulationalists will claim in journal articles, and it seems to me particularly Bibliotheca Sacra, which is a uh, publication from Dallas Theological, where they will claim to have found uh, examples of eminence in the early church fathers. and. Uh, When you read through the articles, you're like, okay, that that just means that they believe that the rapture existed. It's like they're making these bold headlines and then it doesn't say it in the actual church father or they're doing something a little bit uh, fishy with it. And you have to understand finding eminence in the early church fathers is to pre-tribulationalists what finding the missing link in the archaeological record is to. An atheist and pseudo Ephraim is to pre tribulationalists what Archaeopteryx is to the atheist. And essentially, they, they're holding this up and saying, Here's an example of it. But when you read through it, it's just more of the same. Pseudo Ephraim, and Charles Cooper has an excellent article about this, showing that he believed that the, the Antichrist would be on the scene before the rapture. So it's just like all the other church fathers in that regard, which is, of course, completely antithetical to eminence, obviously, if the Antichrist is on the scene before the rapture. But really, the whole point of pseudo Ephraim is that he says that we are going to escape the tribulation using the Greek word thalipsis. Now, the word thalipsis can mean the wrath of God. It's used many different ways, both in Greek literature and in the Bible. It can mean the wrath of God. It can mean persecution. It can basically mean what it means in English. It just means tribulation. pseudo Ephraim says we're going to escape the tribulation. And the natural, grammatical, contextual reading of that is that we're going to escape the wrath of God, which, of course, I and pretty much everybody in this whole premillennial field agree with. We're going to escape. The wrath of God. But a pre tribulationalist hears the word tribulation, and that's a trigger to them because they believe, and we discussed this in the last podcast, that the entire seven year period, that is the entire 70th week of Daniel, is called the tribulation period. As we discussed, there is no reason to call that seven year period a tribulation period. There is a very good reason to call the last half what begins at the midpoint, the abomination of desolation, the Great Tribulation. Pretty much every scholar that's ever looked at this agrees, including pre-tribulationists, agree that the Great Tribulation is something that it begins at the midpoint. But as far as calling that whole period the Tribulation period, you're going to be pretty hard-pressed to find a reason to do that. And I'm pretty sure that even pre-tribulationalists would agree, I could be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure they would agree that nobody called that seven-year period the tribulation period until at least Darby. We're talking about the last 100 or 200 years that people started calling that seven-year period a tribulation. So to read into... This early church father, when he said we're going to escape the tribulation and to say that what he meant was that we're going to escape that entire seven year period because recently they have taken to calling that entire seven year period the tribulation period is patently absurd. And I've been using that term absurd way too much in this podcast, but I just guess I feel that way about imminence. The third and final argument that I'm going to address today that pre will make uh, in defense of eminence is what Alan calls the ecclesiastical argument. And this centers around the 70th week prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. So this is where God tells Daniel, 70 weeks have been determined for your people and for your holy city. And he goes through essentially the future of uh, Israel culminating in the final seven year period. So the argument here is that there was the first 400 and some years of this prophecy that God was dealing with Israel. Uh, then you have uh, 80, 70 or whatever, and then you have the so-called church age. And then at some point in the future, the final seven years is going to begin. And so the argument is, well, this, is, uh, this prophecy was made to Israel and for Israel. Therefore, when the final seven years starts again, uh, the church can't be on the scene. And in their view, the seven-year period itself is imminent, which I actually would not agree with either, but it's a little more plausible than the rapture being imminent. But the point is, they say, therefore... Uh, the church will be raptured before the seven-year period begins. I'll go through a little bit of how you would refute this, but I would encourage you to go to alankershner.com or the Biblical Prophecy Program. The latest podcast, episode 151, is called A Response to Pre-Tribulational Eminence Theology. It's a talk that uh, Alan gave at a recent conference. And in that, he goes through what I'm about to go through in much greater detail. So basically, all you really have to do to refute this is to debunk the premise, which is that God doesn't work with Israel. Israel and the church at the same time, which we see and know from the Bible is not true. Uh, the new covenant is something that was uh, prophesied to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31, uh, that was prophesied to Israel, specifically to Israel um, in, that, in that verse, but we know applies to the church and that the new covenant both applied to the church and israel at the same time when it was being fulfilled similar to the pouring out of the spirit uh, which we saw in joel which we saw uh, fulfilled in acts AD 70 was actually a prophecy that was fulfilled in the church age so god was dealing with israel in the past that is the 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 judgment of AD 70 at the same time obviously he's dealing with the church because that's well into the church age and he's dealing with Israel in the present. He uh, And Alan goes through the, the actual verses here about uh, currently making Israel jealous, the dry bones prophecy that he's saving a remnant. But again, I do point you to Alan's podcast on this. He goes through all the verses and explains it in a lot more detail with all kinds of illustrations. So yeah, check that out. And I think that's about going to do it for me today. Thank you all for tuning in. Again, check out the website prerathmovie.com to check out that trailer, or go to BibleProphecyTalk.com to subscribe to the podcast, sign up for the newsletter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Thank you all, and see you next time.